Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We are glad that you're here this morning. We are looking at Genesis 3 this morning. We are continuing there. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. We've already looked at the temptation of Adam and Eve from Satan in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Then we looked at their fall into sin in Genesis 3, 6 and 7. Then we looked at God coming in judgment and examining them or trying them, much like a prosecuting attorney tries people in verses 8 through 13. And now we turn to God bringing the curse, the curse that's coming because of his judgment upon man for his sin. So we're going to read about the curse in Genesis 3:14 through 19. So look there with me, Genesis 3:14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be, and I'm going to change contrary to toward, your husband. Your desire shall be toward your husband. But he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would be pleased by your spirit to illumine our minds to understand this curse that's been recorded by Moses. We recognize that this is your holy word. We pray we would receive it as such. Father, we pray that you would help us by the Spirit to understand the weightiness of the curse and understand that in the midst of this curse, you made a promise to save us. By the seed of the woman. We pray that we would understand this and by faith believe it and so apprehend Christ and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. The last few weeks we've considered the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve. We looked at their rebellion and we looked at how God came in judgment 
to examine them. We also saw how their guilt from participation in sin affected them. They cowered in fear. They covered their nakedness with fig leaves from one another and from God, and they shifted blame away from themselves to others. This morning, we want to consider the curse. The curse that God levels against the serpent, the woman, and the man. And in so doing, we're really going to spend the vast majority of our time on the curse. We will spend some time at the end of the Sermon on the Promise, and then I'm going to pick the promise up again next week, as well as sort of the apprehension of the promise and the effects of the apprehension of the promise with regard to Adam and Eve. So this morning we're going to spend most of our time on the curse, which is Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And we're going to look at the curse as it comes in order, first on the serpent, then on the woman, and then on the man. And we'll also spend some time at the very end on the promise that's there, which is in Genesis 3, 15. Genesis 3, 15. So let's look first and spend the majority of the time on the curse. Now, I want you to note that in our passage or in this scene, the Lord will curse three parties or three characters. He will begin by cursing the serpent. Now, those three parties that are cursed are cursed in the order in which they show up in the temptation and fall. So in Genesis 3.1, the serpent slithers into the garden. In Genesis 3.1b, the second part of Genesis 3.1, we hear about the woman who is there talking with him. And then Genesis 3.6, we hear about the man who was also with her. And the curse is going to come in that order. So we hear the serpent cursed first in Genesis 3.14 and 15. We hear the woman cursed second in Genesis 316, and then we hear the man finally receiving the curse, and really the curse toward the man and on the ground in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. But I want to take each of those parties in order as the Lord gave the curse in this particular order. So let's look first at the curse upon the serpent. The curse upon the serpent, look at Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said, to the serpent. Now you've heard this language before, by the way, the Lord God said, when God comes in judgment in verse 3, 8, so Genesis 3, 8, when God comes in judgment, he comes to speak to the man, and the first thing we hear from him is, you know, this stuff the Lord said. And then if you look at particularly, especially the same language in verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, and he asked her a question. With regard to Adam, the Lord asks questions. With regard to Eve, the Lord asks questions. With regard to the serpent, the Lord makes a statement. He gives a condemnation. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, notice there's no question, what have you done? But because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly You shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Notice a few details. The serpent is not asked a question, as the man and the woman were. In other words, what I'm getting at here is, last week I said as the Lord God came in judgment, there was a kind of fatherly patience even in his prosecution of the man and the woman by asking them questions. 
questions which the Lord knew the answer to. Yet he was trying them in a more patient way than he does, if you will, with the serpent. No questions for the serpent. He just comes in and begins to curse him. He turns to the serpent and says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. It's fascinating language because the serpent is cursed. Notice that language. The serpent is cursed. If you look at that last phrase, not of verse 14, but maybe I'll say the middle phrase, above all beasts of the field. Cursed are you above all beasts of the field. Now notice in Genesis 3.1 corresponding language. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. You guys, hear, you guys see the similarity in language? That parallel language? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That does not mean, and I want you to hear this. This text, cursed are you above all the beasts of the field, does not mean the other beasts of the field are being cursed any more than he means all the other beasts of the field were crafty. The serpent's more crafty than every other beast of the field does not mean the other beasts of the field are a little bit crafty. And the serpent is more cursed than any other beast of the field does not mean the other beasts of the field are a little less cursed. It means that this curse is being dropped on the serpent because of his deceit, his lying, his wickedness, his craftiness, which is a kind of wisdom that feigns, if you will, being wise, but is ultimately wicked foolishness. And look at the next part. He's a wicked liar getting the just curse he deserves, but notice the next bit of language. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, you guys have heard this charge before as people try to mock Genesis 3 and make this a sort of silly passage when they say things like, oh, so you're saying prior to the fall into sin, snakes had legs. And what Moses is getting at is this is where the serpent where snakes lost their legs. The point of this curse is not, I want you to hear this emphatically, is not that this is the point in history in which snakes lost their legs. Rather, the serpent as being cursed, and this language is intentional language, he's being cursed as an unclean, detestable creature. That's the first thing you need to hear, as an unclean, detestable creature who goes about on his belly. That's what that language is getting at. The one who goes about on his belly is an unclean, detestable creature. And second, he's being cursed as a conquered enemy, as one who licks the dust or eats the dust. Listen to Leviticus 11.42 when I talk about this unclean, detestable creature that may not enter God's holy tabernacle. Remember, Leviticus is also written by Moses. May not enter God's holy dwelling place and an unclean serpent of which we must not or may not eat. Listen, Leviticus 11.42. Whatever goes on its belly, that's the language. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground you shall not eat, for they are detestable. This is an unclean animal. The point here is that Satan is hearing this language and the curse, 
that he is detestable, unclean. He's not to enter, if you will, in that sense, God's holy presence other than for judgment. Now further, a creature that eats the dust is a manner speaking about a conquered foe. You can see that in Psalm 72 with regard to this psalm that's either about or by Solomon, but clearly is messianic. You can see that in Micah, but I'm going to look specifically at two passages in Isaiah that pick up this language, and I just want you to hear them. Isaiah 49, 22, I want you to hear this. Now, pay attention, Isaiah 49 comes after Isaiah 40. We follow that? Isaiah 40 is where we get this kind of book of consolation. There is a Messiah coming to console, to comfort, to care for Israel who has sinned and been carried off into exile. And this Messiah is coming, and we hear about him in Isaiah 49, 6, as the one who will be not only saving the Jews, but a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now we hear this language in Isaiah 49, 22, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on the shoulders. You hear the victory of God's people over his enemies? Now listen. Kings shall be your foster fathers, their queens your nursing mothers. Now listen to that, what's going to happen to kings and queens, the enemy nations. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. They will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. But those who are not waiting for him are licking the dust of the ground. They are conquered foes, and it is their shame that they eat the dust. That's true in Psalm 72. That's true in Micah as well. Listen to Isaiah 65 Verse 25, talking about the new heavens and new earth. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now listen. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is true for the serpent. This being a conquered foe is true for the serpent who shall eat the dust. And for all the serpent's successors, for all his offspring, it is true of all Satan's seed. And that leads to the next part of the curse on the serpent. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I want to note a few details here as well. First, notice there's enmity between the serpent and the woman. At the beginning of Genesis 3, they're like chummy. They're like allies. But now as a result of sin, there's enmity between them. Most expressly, the enmity is between the serpent's offspring or seed and the woman's offspring or seed. This is speaking by the way, of the spiritual seed of the serpent. This is not saying that there's going to be a forever conflict between man and snakes. I mean, unless you mean snakes in the way we talk about politicians. Then maybe like that. Which makes precisely the point I'm wanting to make. 
we can see that there's a spiritual principle at work here. In fact, let's look at the battle. The first battle between, if you will, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent as the serpent comes after the woman's first son. If you remember in Genesis 4.1, she gives birth to Cain, names him Cain because by the help of the Lord, she's received the son, which we'll get into more when we get to Genesis 4. But notice what Cain is opposed by. Notice the opposition. Look at verse 7. The Lord comes to Cain in verse 6 and asks him why he's angry. So again, the Lord is questioning him. And then in verse 7, we hear this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is what the Lord's saying to Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Do you hear who his enemy is? Sin. It's crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, or its desire is toward you, but you must rule over it. Cain is being opposed by sin. What we're talking about when there's an opposition between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is we're talking about a spiritual war that the curse is setting in motion. There's a spiritual war. Satan, sin, and death are now coming for mankind. Sadly, because of the corruption and guilt of the fall, your own heart is coming for you. There's an opposition between man and Satan that's happening here, but we need to be more specific about that opposition. This isn't just a war between man generically and Satan. This is a war between God's people and those who belong to Satan. This is a war between God's people and those who belong to Satan. And it's not speaking of Satan's physical seed, but to his spiritual children. Who are Satan's spiritual children? Those who heed the voice of the devil. Those who love what Satan loves. Those are the children of the devil. Keep your hand in Genesis 3 and look at 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8. We'll see this comparison there. 1 John is near the end of your Bibles if you're not familiar with it. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. So if you've gotten Revelation, you're just a bit too far. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 8, there's much to say about this text, and I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said about this text. I just want you to focus on those who are Satan's offspring and those who are God's offspring. That's all we're looking at right now. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, I want you to hear that language. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, not whoever sins is of the devil. Whoever's life is patterned after sin is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's John giving a nod towards Genesis 3.15, by the way. But let's keep going. No one born of God, in other words, no one who has been born again by the Holy Spirit and thus trusts in Christ and has repented of his sins, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What is his life marked by? Repentance. His life is not marked by sinlessness. His life is marked by repentance. 
He just can't keep making a practice of sinning. His conscience and the Holy Spirit nags at him to such a degree that he's brought to repentance. And he wants to walk in righteousness. And he does. Look, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in him, has given him new birth, and is causing him, Ezekiel 36, to walk in his statutes. Is causing him, Ezekiel 36, to love and obey the law. He's taken away his heart of stone and given him heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, he's written his law on his heart. Not written his law on his heart in the sense that he's condemned for not keeping it, but written his law on his heart in the sense that now he wants to do it. By this, it is evident, verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You hear the two types of kids? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you do not practice righteousness and you do not love Christ's people, the church, Listen to this. If you say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, you are not born of God. For Christ does not loathe his own body, nor does the Spirit. So there are the children of devil. They make a practice of sinning. They may profess faith in Christ. John deals with them in 1 John 2. They were among us, but they were not really of us. They may profess faith in Christ, but they love their sin, and it is their practice. And then there are the children of God. They not only profess Christ, but they bear the fruits of a true and lively faith. They love righteousness. They're marked by repentance and a turning toward what God loves. They love the law. They love it. They delight in it. They meditate on it day and night. They loathe their sins. They hate it. They repent of it. They love righteousness. They love Christ's church. Why? Because it's the elect of God. Those who are blood-bought by the Son and those who are dwelled by the Holy Spirit. Anyone born again by the Spirit loves those people because God loves them. They hate what the world offers them in place of Christ. With that said, in 1 John 3 even, we see a more specific seed of the woman, a more specific one. Look at 3.8 again. The last sentence of 3.8 the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You hear that? And that brings us back to Genesis 3.15. So look back at Genesis 3.15. He, the last phrase, he, now we have a singular, masculine pronoun. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will eventually be fully and finally vanquished or conquered by the seed of the woman. 
the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now, if you heard me earlier in our series in Genesis when I dealt with the temptations of Christ, when Christ is tempted after his baptism, he comes up out of the water and into the wilderness to be tempted prior to ascending the mountain to teach, much in the pattern we see with Israel in the Exodus. When Christ is tempted and he resists the temptation of the devil, that putting Satan underfoot has begun. It's begun. He is not listening to the voice of the serpent. He is listening to the voice of God, unlike Adam. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So the serpent is a defeated foe who will always be opposed by God's people and who will always oppose God's people, particularly God's son. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. But there are two sides. These are the two sides of the war, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this seed of the woman is coming to destroy the seed of the serpent. Please remember that. And we'll return to Genesis 3.15 in a bit at the end of this sermon and more next week. But now let's move on to the curse on the woman. The curse on the woman. Genesis 3.16, look there. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be... Now, the ESV, if you have the most recent updated ESV, they put contrary to your husband. Shall be contrary to your husband. I don't think that's a particularly good translation. The language there is your desire shall be toward your husband. They're getting dynamic and their translation, and when you get dynamic in translation, which there is always some dynamic in the translation because no language perfectly comes over to another language. We all understand that. So there's always some dynamic. But when you get dynamic in your translation, you tend to include a bit of your interpretation in your translation, which is almost impossible to avoid in every case. But we attempt to resist it. So my guess is your New American Standard, if you have that, is probably saying something like, your desire shall be to or toward your husband, which I think is a better translation. Your older ESV also said that. To your husband, here's the contrast, but he shall rule over you. Now we're noting two effects of the curse upon the woman. First, the woman's vocation in childbearing. Her vocation, I want you to hear that. Her vocation as a wife and mother is what's going to be affected here. The woman's vocation as a wife and mother will be affected here. First, her vocation in childbearing or her vocation as a mother will be frustrated with pain. Look at Genesis 3.16, the first phrase, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The woman was given as a helpmate to Adam whose vocation, her vocation was to be a wife and a mother. And the curse falls directly with regard to the woman on what her original vocation was. The woman was created with the incredible, beautiful, amazing capacity to be fruitful and multiply. It's amazing that a woman can gestate a baby and give birth to it and feed it 
It's incredible. But that glorious gift is now frustrated. We're told it shall be done in pain. In pain. Your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. It's now a painful toil. Women now suffer from loss in an area of life where they should only ever have experienced gain. They suffer from curse, the curse in an area of life where they should only ever have known blessing. They now suffer from barrenness. We'll see that in the scriptures played out in Genesis. That's a theme that will come out. They suffer from barrenness. They know they shouldn't. They know that's an effect of the curse, but they do. They suffer from miscarriages, stillbirth, and any numerable sources of pain with regard to their menstrual cycle. They suffer pain and complications with regard to the whole reproductive cycle. They're struck with pain and disease in the very part of their body created to bring forth blessing. Women now suffer with toil and pain in childbearing and childbirth. Second, the woman's vocation as Adam's helper or his wife, his closest companion, is now frustrated by sinful strife or by the curse. So not only her vocation as a mother, but her vocation as a wife is affected by the fall. Look at the last phrase, last sentence there of Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I critiqued this translation, though I'm not entirely opposed to what they're getting at interpretively. I just don't like to put it in the text in translation because there is no little debate over what's meant by your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's debate over the centuries. Some have claimed that this way of seeing it where the desire will be contrary to your husband, he shall rule over you, is just something as of an exegetical paper written by a woman in the 1970s in response to feminism, but that's just patently false. I've found it as many as four or 500 years ago. I found this interpretive view back in Chrysostom to some degree. So, I mean, that's taking you back 1,600 years. In other words, there's been debate over this text for a long time. That's the point I'm getting at. The question that's always asked here is, what does it mean? Her desire will be toward her husband. What's the nature of her desire? That's what we're asking. What's the nature of her desire? And why is it contrasted? Why is the nature of her desire contrasted with the phrase, but he shall rule over you? Well, look at Genesis 4, 7, because I want you to see the word desire there used in the same syntactical kind of structure. In other words, this grammatically is a parallel in Genesis 4, 7, written by the same author, just one chapter over, with the same word for desire. Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Now listen to the phrase. Here it is. Sin's desire, its desire, is toward you or contrary to you. But you must rule over it. You hear the contrast? Sin desires to conquer you. 
but you must rule over it. In other words, what I'm arguing is that in Genesis 3, 16, what you hear, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, is the desire of the woman here is a desire to usurp authority. The woman was created to follow the lead of her husband. She was created for him because she was created from him. She was made to be his helper, his companion, who submits to his gentle and loving leadership. We see his authority over her in the naming of her. The biblical commands for a wife to submit to her husband, I want you to hear this. The biblical commands for a wife to submit to her husband are never, never grounded in the curse. It's not because of the curse, now you should submit to your husband. Please hear that. Biblical texts do not ground or provide as the foundation the submission of wives to their husbands in the fall or in the curse. Rather, those texts that refer to wives submitting to their husband ground that submission in creation, the way things were supposed to be, and in redemption, the restoration of what's been lost. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, just to demonstrate this. 1 Corinthians 11, again, not a passage that we will look at in any depth this morning, but I just want you to see the grounding for the submission of the wife to her husband, both in redemption, and then we'll look down at creation. 1 Corinthians 11, don't ask me right after the service about head coverings. I have not yet taught through 1 Corinthians, and so I want to reserve judgment on this passage as a whole until I've had time to deal with it in any depth. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You hear that comparison between Christ and God, between man and wife? Now look down at verse 8, for man was not made from woman. But woman from man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, Paul's going to have more to say about that, but I just want you to hear where he's grounding the headship of the husband. He's grounding it in creation and redemption. There's a lot more to say here, but I want to say minimally that. Now, go to Ephesians 5. We'll look at a second passage just to continue to demonstrate this. There are more, but we'll... Just look here. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In fact, if you look at the context of this passage in Ephesians this is in the context of putting off the old man of the old creation who was sinning and putting on the new man. And part of the putting off of the old sinful Adamic man and putting on the new creation man in Christ, part of putting that off and this on is a series of authority structures that you need to be rightly related to. So wives submit to husbands, children obey parents, slaves Obey their masters, etc. 
This is not something that's from the curse or the fall. This is something that's in the original creation pattern and is being redeemed. Both texts ground the submission of the wife in the relation between Christ and God and Christ and his church, the creation of man and his wife. None ground this in the fall. But the woman left her proper sphere and looked neither to the Lord nor the husband. As the woman listened to the voice, listen, as the woman listened to the voice of the usurper himself, so she will be like him. That's the curse. He usurped authority, so will she. Now, by the way, this curse on authority structures is not just a curse that's going to affect the relation between the man and the wife, but between all, if you will, all authority structures that God has ordained. So man and the appointed rulers God has put over him, so man and his parents, etc. We could just go on. She usurped authority, and that usurping led, listen, she usurped authority, and that usurping led to her being deceived into sin and encouraging her husband to do the same. The fall and curse is not bringing some new authority structure into her life. The fall is frustrating the harmony of the originally created authority structure. Paul provided that same argument when women in the church in Ephesus were attempting to usurp their proper authority. It's the same argument he provides. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Now, if you look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, this is a reference to the church. It's a reference to the church. He's saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's to remain quiet or submissive. Listen to what it says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You hear the creation account there? What's the grounding for a woman not teaching or exercising authority over a man in the church? Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now look. What he goes on to say, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Here's what he's saying. Women should not usurp their proper authority to attempt to teach and lead in Christ's church. Why? Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's a created authority structure. And what happened when Eve did usurp her proper authority? What happened is the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And Paul is telling the women in the church not to commit the same error Eve did in usurping authority, and thus also... Lead the church into some error. Now look at 1 Timothy 3.15. Yet she will be saved, the woman will be saved, through childbearing. Now that's fascinating, and it's pointing us back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman who will come and save us. Points us back to the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, so turn back there. And while we're there, just before we move on to the curse of the man, let's think about the frustration of the marital relationship a bit more. The husband's loving and gentle leadership is corrupted into a kind of domineering. 
That's what's happening there. Your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. He's already, he's already her head. What's happening here is a corruption of his leadership into a kind of domineering over his wife. The woman's original submission to her husband is no longer a joyful helping of a loving, gentle husband. It's now a strained relationship in which the wife attempts to usurp her husband's authority and which the husband attempts to dominate rather than to gently lead. You now have either, and we all see it, overly passive men and in marriages with overly domineering wives or domineering men in marriages with overly passive women. You know you can be an excessively passive woman. One in which you're afraid to speak to your husband because he's basically, fundamentally, an abusive, domineering person. This is where we get spousal abuse and divorce and all manner of sin in the marital relationship. It comes in the curse. When men lead their wives in a manner that's unwise, running over them, not gently, kindly leading them on the way so that together we're of one mind and heart as we go forward, but just saying, woman, get in line and do what I say. The moment you're telling your wife you need to submit, you have lost. And what I mean by that is, if you're having to drop that kind of word on her, rather than leading her in a way that when you come to her and say, honey, you're in sin in not following my lead here, understand the distinction of what I'm saying. It's one thing for me to confront my wife for the sin of not submitting to me. It's another thing for me just to run around the house saying, submit, woman, because I don't lead her well. You guys understand the distinction? I hope so. If you don't, come talk to us. We'll help you with the wisdom of that. It is wrong for your wife not to submit. Wrong. It's a sin. It ought to be confronted. It is wrong for you to domineer. It is wrong. It's a sin. And there is a sometimes subtle line about those things that we have to walk through in wisdom. The relationship in marriage has been corrupted. That's my point. The ground for the authority structures have been corrupted. And so husbands and wives are at enmity with each other rather than in a proper relation to one another. And it shows up even in good marriages. Even in good marriages. Finally, let's consider the curse upon the man. The curse upon the man. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Now I want to note some details of this text that help give it texture. First thing I want you to catch is this is the longest and fullest section of the curse. Interestingly, when he turns to the man, 
the longest, fullest section of the curse is dropped on him. That is so because Adam bears the most responsibility. He is the federal head, the prophet, the priest, and the king. He was supposed to speak the truth, guard God's garden, subdue the serpent, and protect his wife. But he did not. Second, look at Genesis 3.17. Note that God said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife. When he says you listened to the voice of your wife, that means he obeyed her. We see that language used again in Genesis 16 and verse 2 when Abraham listens to the voice of his wife Sarah or Sarai. If you remember what happened, God had just promised to give them innumerable offspring in Genesis 15 and cut a covenant there with them. And in Genesis 16, Abraham comes out of that having believed God has credited him as righteousness, trusting the Lord, seeing a covenant ceremony in a theophany before him, walks out, and the next thing you know here in Genesis 16 too is he listened to the voice of his wife. And so he sinned, sleeping with Hagar. This will become a struggle for man throughout Scripture. He'll be warned again and again not to marry idolatrous or ungodly women lest he follow them in their sin. Now singles, both men and women, please note what has been said. Do not be so foolish as to think that you can escape the fall in your relationships. If you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. So please, pursue the godly woman or man you were created to be. Pursue being that. And please, run like the wind from ungodly suitors. You shouldn't see them and go, they're attractive. I think they have a future. You should run like the wind as far and as fast in the other direction as you can. Single men, a wife is not better than being single if the wife is ungodly. If she's ungodly, an ungodly wife will be like rottenness in your bones. Single women, a husband who's ungodly is not better than being single. An ungodly husband will either passively allow you to lead, thus providing you basically a full-grown child to take care of. Let's face it. Men who allow their wives to run the household, to pay the bills, to take care of them, are children that are full-grown. So some women have two or three children by birth and one by marriage. Or... That man will domineer you, leaving you anxious, lonely, and afraid in your own home. Let's look at the third detail here, Genesis 3:17c. Notice what it says, the last phrase, sorry, C, that's not helpful to you. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. The ground is cursed because of man. Man's vocation as a farmer of the field, as one who subdues the earth, His access to God's bounty in the fruit-bearing trees has been frustrated. He will now eat in pain. Notice before, the woman's vocation as a wife and mother is now painful toil. It's been frustrated. And the man's vocation as someone who farms, subdues the earth, is now in painful toil. This word pain is used to speak of the frustration of the woman's vocation and the man's. Now, I want to be clear about this. Work is not a punishment for sin. 
You don't work because you sin. You're not going to die and go and sit on a cloud and look at some little angel baby playing a harp. That is not what the future has for you for eternity. Thank God. Who wants that? Those little angel babies are ugly and weird and clouds sitting there seems boring. I mean, I can't imagine a more dull, uninspired, non-transcendent view of eternity with God. You will see the holy God in his glory for eternity. Work was in the garden, and in a sense, you'll have a vocation, at least of worship, in eternity. There's more to say there, but the point is work is not a punishment for sin. Work is good. And men, work is not good because you find it self-actualizing or personally fulfilling. It's great when your work is also personally fulfilling. But personal fulfillment is not what makes work good. Work is good because God has given you to do it. It's painful toil and frustration in work because of the punishment of sin. The woman's curse struck at her vocation as a wife and mother, and the man's curse struck at his vocation as a worker of the ground, a provider and protector. And I have seen men offloading the burden of this toilsome work onto their wives because their work is too hard or they struggle daily or it isn't fulfilling their hopes and dreams. Brothers, if that's you, you need to repent. If a man will not work, he will not eat. Please hear me. I'm not saying a man should repent if he cannot work but if he will not. Listen, brothers, you do not need sympathy if you won't work. You need to be rebuked. You need to repent. There are some men in here who give us any number of excuses as to why they don't need to work and why their wife can carry both her curse and vocation and being a wife and mother and his curse and vocation in having painful toil. Your excuses, if they're not real disability or an agreement for a time to put aside work so that you can finish some kind of a degree and get some kind of, whatever, you can list the things. A financial downturn that requires both of you to work so you can pay the bills or, you know, those kinds of circumstances. If it's just, it's hard, I don't like it, I haven't found the thing that fulfills me, I feel bad every day, so does your wife. Let's look at the fourth detail, Genesis 3 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. That's going to that kind of painful toil. Now listen to this, to return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. This is really speaking to the humiliation of death. Man will face physical death. A man and woman, by the way, but mankind. He is from the dust, and to the dust he shall return. But I want you to hear this. Our physical death is not a feature of the creation. Man was not created to die. Our physical death is a feature of the curse. It's a result of sin. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that leads to my second major point this morning. Just really the way I'm going to end this is 
Now that we've looked at the curse, let's consider the promise. And we're going to spend the whole sermon next week on the promise, so I'll just spend a little bit of time this morning because I don't want you just to leave going, curse, judgment, sin, ugh, end of the day, thanks for beating me up. Now I've gotten my self-atonement done. That's not what I'm wanting to do. I want you to get to Christ, to the good news that's here. Look at Genesis 3.15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What I want you to notice is from verse 14 through verse 15, this curse that drops on the serpent is like music to the ears of God's people. It is because the first word they hear in judgment is the conquering of Satan and the salvation of themselves in Christ. This is the mother promise of all biblical promises. In other words, when I say the mother promise of all biblical promises, what I mean is this is the promise and what scholars have meant for some time. Um, this is the promise that gives birth to all the other promises. Some people call it the proto-euangelion, the first proto-first euangelion gospel, the first gospel that's preached. God had placed man under a covenant in the garden of works. If Adam was perfectly perpetually obedient to God's law, then he would merit eternal life. He would eat from the tree of life and live forever. But man sinned and rebelled, so death is his curse. And what is death? Well, death is the physical death of the soul separating from the body. From dust you've come, to dust you shall return. And I want to make this because, just sort of a side note, tangent, I know it's already a long sermon, but here's a side note. I often hear at gravesides or bedsides of someone who's just died, well, this body's just a shell. It's not them. They're gone. I understand what you're trying to say. I think what you mean, I hope what you mean, is the breath of life, the soul has left them and departed to be with the Lord. It's left the body and departed to be with the Lord. It's separated from the body. But I want you to hear this important. The body is them. The soul is that person. The body is that they are an embodied soul. The separation of the body and soul is not natural in the sense that it's not the way God created it to be. And it's what Christ comes to redeem when he forgives us our sins, rises from the dead, and promises the bodily resurrection of us with him. Yes, their soul has departed, the breath of life is gone, but that's still their body. By the way, that's why we know that the desecration of bodies is morally evil. It's not just some kind of shell that lies there that has nothing to it. And it's precisely the stark reality that that's them laying there as their body lays lifeless that we see the curse. We see it. Their soul is with the Lord, yet it is that body which Jesus will raise from the dead on the last day. We should not lose sight of this or we lose glory of the good news. Death is also the spiritual death of being born guilty and corrupt in Adam, an enemy of God, separated from him. Children 
of the devil. By nature, children of wrath, Ephesians 2. That's why we're born bent towards sin, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf and dead. That is a part of the death of the curse. Finally, death is also the second death of facing the final judgment and the eternal hell that awaits all sinners. Please hear this. When people die without Christ, they have died in their sins. They do not go to a better place. They stand judgment before our holy God. Our God who testified to himself in all of creation. Our God who wrote his law on their hearts. Our God who graciously and patiently held out his hand to them in the gospel all day long. And they're cast into eternal hell as punishment for their sins. Folks, if you don't believe that, then why are we even here? If there's no eternal punishment, then there's no gospel of Jesus Christ to save us from such wrath. And if there's no gospel, then no resurrection, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, we die. Don't waste your time on some empty religious activities. Go indulge the flesh, for nothing matters more than your pleasure. This is our state of death under the curse because Adam violated the original covenant God made. However, God is making a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And what's the substance of that covenant? The serpent crushing seed of the woman. The substance of the covenant is the Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man who came to destroy the works of the devil. It is a covenant of grace because there is now a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's a covenant of grace because we receive the reward based upon the work of another. Not our own work, but his work. In Adam, we're condemned for our sin. In Christ, we are rewarded for his righteousness. Do you hear the grace there? The rest of the Bible story, we're going to be looking for the seed of the woman who's coming. So we're going to do. We start looking for the seed of the woman. We'll wonder if it's Cain or Abel. Then Cain will kill Abel, and we will know it's neither one of them. We'll wonder if it's Seth, and then the sons of God or the sons of Seth will intermarry with the daughters of men, and wickedness will reign on the earth, and we will know it is not him or his sons at that point. We'll wonder if it's Noah, upon whom God is gracious, who goes on the ark, and man is saved through that act of God and putting Noah on the ark through the flood and he comes out and he'll start getting drunk there in the presence of God and we'll know it's not him. We'll wonder if it's Abraham only to see Abraham obey the voice of his wife Sarah and sleep with Hagar. We'll wonder if it's Isaac or Jacob or Moses, especially Moses and then he strikes the rock or David and then he stays behind from war and spies out Bathsheba. Or Solomon, where it seems in 1 Kings, the first 10 chapters, man, this must be him. And then we hear the refrain, but Solomon loved many foreign women. And we keep on being disappointed. Disappointed again and again and again until we hear this news from the angels to the shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. See, friends, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He obediently withstood the temptations of Satan. He obediently went to the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath due to us for the judgment for our sin. He victoriously rose from the dead, being vindicated before all as holy, innocent, and undefiled. He ascended to heaven where he sat down on the throne of glory and of grace, and he sent his spirit to unite us to himself through faith. So if you look to Christ in faith, you are saved, forgiven, washed clean, born again, declared to be righteous. The penalty of sin has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, and we long for that day in which Christ will return and cast the presence of sin into hell forever. Where we will again commune with the Lord in his presence forever, reigning and ruling with him. What's the message? Look to Christ and be saved and blessed. Don't look to him and be lost and cursed. May we trust in him and him alone. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the grace that has been shown to us in your son. The kindness that we know in the fact that when the first Adam fell and received the curse, you promised in your cursing of the serpent to send the second Adam who would be obedient, righteous, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin and who would pay the penalty due to us on the cross and raise from the grave conquering death, ascending to heaven where you are, sending his spirit and so by the spirit through faith, bringing us home with him. May we trust in him and him alone. May we look away from ourselves and to Christ and walk in righteousness. We recognize that we are born like our father, Adam, bent towards sin, selfishness, guilty, corrupt in all of our faculties. And yet you and your great love for us sent your son to purchase grace for us at the cross and your spirit to apply that to our hearts and minds so that we be born anew in Christ. May we walk in newness of life, putting off the works of the flesh and putting on the works of righteousness and holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.